You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that puts the ass in classic literature. I'm Megan, and I'm I'm sick again. I'm a boneless donut. What does that mean? I'm RJ. Are there donuts that have uh, that have bones? Apparently so. Can I get a donut bone in? You can. You see, the flavor <laughs> comes from the bone. Ah, gotcha. If you sous vide it, it permeates the rest of the donut. True gourmands go for the the delicious donut marrow in the donut bone. That's right. Where do you think cream comes from? I don't know anymore. Um, literature. <laughs> Books and stuff. I don't want to feel well. But I, I carry on even as my body tries to kill me from the inside out. So today, as we move away from the spooks and scares of the Halloween and into... I don't know, fall or whatever, I assume. We don't we don't really have that in Florida. Although today is nice. You didn't do your little intro thing. What are you talking oh, about? I guess, yeah, you got the ass in class. All yeah, right. yes. Wow, you didn't do your little intro thing, except I just remembered that you did. Honestly, I can't believe it took us like 68 episodes to get that joke out. I put the lass in class. Okay. I'm a hot lass. I wouldn't argue with that. You're very pretty. You ever play Pokemon? I'm young lass. Do you want a battle? I always battle and I win. Okay. Strategically, I only use one Pokemon for some reason. <laughs> you're not really, I don't know if I call you a young lass anymore. I think you're just a regular lass. Oh, they used me to record all the lasses. I did young lass, old lass, couple lass, <laughs> laying fast. I was all of them. Man, they really fucking went cheap on the voice acting, huh? Yeah. So as as we do as we do this whatever it is we're doing we're heading back into a world that we have absolutely no business in poetry. I have business in it. I teach it. I know all about poetry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Name five of the the biggest poets. Name your top five poets. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the internet joke. Oh, you're into poetry. Name five of the the biggest poets. <laughs> The biggest? Yes, the largest by uh, volume. Notorious B.I.G. <laughs> it's pretty big. It's true. He was large and he rhymed. You don't have to name anymore because we're only talking about one poet today. America's poet. A cat so cool, he's basically frozen. The guy who hurled a book at Truman Capote's head that one time. Robert Frost. Yay. <laughs> Obviously, the, the incredible influence and mark on both poetry and mainstream culture left by Robert Frost is pretty fucking significant from the fact that he was the first poet to read at a presidential inauguration to those inspiration posters that will just have Robert Frost quotes on them. Robbie is also clearly a Robert Frost fan. And he has a medical disease named after him. Wait, what? Frostbite. Did you... <laughs> You're really proud of that one. That's what happens when he bites you. And he, <laughs> and he was known to bite people. Little known. <laughs> he bit probably. Little known fact, Robert Frost was teeming with rabies. 
So before we, we dive into the actual poems of Robert Frost and the ways in which people have vastly misunderstood and misconstrued many of those poems, as, as happens, we've talked about that with a few famous writers, most notably Shakespeare, how people take that shit out of context. And RJ, uh, I assume, because I know what poems you picked, is going to go into a modified version of a rant that you can hear in one of our study breaks. I don't know if it's modified at all. Probably the same rant. <laughs> Probably the exact same rant, but you can pay to hear an earlier version of it. In a study break where we talk about the most famous misconstrued quotes. Since I don't listen to our show, you can listen to both of my rants side by side and decide how different is it actually. Yeah, because it's not even like he went back to re-listen and copy it because, as you just said, you don't listen to a damn thing we do. So, yeah, uh, you be the judge. So, uh, RJ... So I'm not Robert Frost. Why don't you tell me about it? <laughs> I'm not Robert Frost either. Robert Lee Frost was born March 26, 1874 and died January 29, 1963. I wonder if he was named after anyone. I wonder. Robert Lee Frost. Oh Pro- yeah, probably, probably Robert E. Lee. No, probably Frosty the Snowman. A very jolly, happy soul. Or <laughs> so I'm told. Just like old Robert Lee over here. So, Frosty, the man, the poet, the American, not the snowman, the creature, the illegal immigrant from the skies. (laughs) Wait, what? Did you just refer to snow as the illegal immigrant from the sky? Hey, I've seen a lot of snow in my life. I've yet to see a passport. (laughs) I got got nothing for that. Build that overhang. (laughs) Continue. So Frosty was born in San Francisco, California to journalist William Prescott Frost Jr. and Isabella Moody. Daddy Frost was a teacher, a very fine profession, as well as an editor for the San Francisco Evening Bulletin. Mommy Frost was a homemaker. Daddy Frost died of tuberculosis, the official disease of Ono class, when Frosty was 11. <laughs> tuberculosis. Really the official disease of literature in general. Uh, mommy moved the whole family from one liberal bastion to another. Massachusetts, with the help of Frosty's grandfather, William Frost Sr. That help was very important because Daddy Frost left the family with $8 when he died, or just shy of $100 in today's money. Oof. Yeah. Poverty. The other whatever of Onola class. <laughs> yeah, but the family was rich. Oh. They themselves were poor. That's why they had like this grandfather who was like, oh yeah, come on, move. I'll pay for it. Don't worry. We'll we'll get to how rich his family was in a bit. Okay, I take it back. So while in Massachusetts, Mommy Frost joined the new Swedenborgian Church, which was the church for Swedish Protestants. Okay. Frosty was baptized there, although he allowed his affiliation with the church to lapse when he became an adult. During his time in Massachusetts, which took him up to adulthood, Frosty was living in Lawrence, which was a big immigrant community at the time, as it was home to a number of textile industries. This seems to be in conflict with the fact that Frosty's writings are generally set in more rural kinds of surroundings. Upon graduating high school, Frosty went off to college, Dartmouth. He studied hard. He joined a fraternity. He really poured himself into this whole college thing. And it lasted two months before dropping out. Wow, two months, huh? Two months. Dude barely made it halfway through his first semester before noping it out of there. He never returned to continue his studies at Dartmouth. This bit of information is shocking to me. Considering how many colleges he probably spoke at? You see, a bit behind the scenes here, 
Megan and I were staying with very lovely cousins who we love very much. Their taste in television sometimes leaves something to be desired. They don't listen to the show. You can say it. In particular, they put on a documentary about Robert Frost and his relationship with JFK, which we'll talk about in a bit, and the role education played in that. Holy shit. Based on that documentary, I would have thought Frosty had gotten straight A's and built dormitories of Dartmouth and Amherst with his own hands based on how much they were talking him up as a good old man of arts and letters and how he did liberal arts college oh so proud this is true actually that's definitely the impression that you get motherfucker he was a student for two months <laughs> i don't think that's enough time to finish a single class fake or, it till you make it <laughs> or get a grade other than an f or incomplete it's true get out of here with that nonsense is it that was the one that Wright got very angry about it's not amherst right it's like amherst or something whatever <laughs> after dropping out of university frosty returned home to make some cash for the family he helped his mom teach her classes. He delivered newspapers. He worked in a lamp factory. Wait, so he helped teach classes. Yeah. Didn't even make it in school. Made it through <laughs> two months. I guess. But he did not really like any of those jobs. His love was poetry. When he was 20 years young in 1894, he sold his first poem, My Butterfly, an Elegy. On November 8, 1894, almost exactly 125 years ago. Ooh. Ooh. He sold that poem for 15 whole dollars, which is the equivalent of $500 today. Not bad for your first poem sale. Shortly thereafter, Frosty met a young lady by the name of Eleanor Miriam White, who he asked to marry him. At first, she turned him down, claiming before she could marry, she needed to finish her college education. Hell yeah, girl. Put that first. Get that knowledge. Good choice, Eleanor. Frosty asked her again after she graduated, and this time, she agreed. The two married in 1895 when Frosty was 21. Realizing he had never bothered to get more than two months of higher education into him, Frosty decided to go back to school. This time, Harvard. But much like last time, he never stayed around long enough to get a degree. Instead, he dropped out to go live on a farm given to him by his grandfather so Frosty and Eleanor could spend some good old quality time together. For the next nine years, Frosty took his hand at keeping the farm. He would usually wake up early. He took his hand at keeping the farm? Yeah. That's not how words do. How would you phrase it? Maybe he tried his hand at keeping a farm? Frosty tried his hand at keeping the farm. He would usually wake up early, work on his poetry, and then hit the fields. While he was able to keep him and Eleanor alive for the better part of a decade, the farm was not exactly thriving and he returned to education and teaching. He took on the position of English teacher at New Hampshire's Pinkerton Academy from 1906 to 1911. Then he took his talents over to the New Hampshire Normal School. (laughs) You know, the normal school for normal kids learning normal things. So, normcore. There you go. You could be a a college dropout and teach. Those were the days. Those were the days. And probably support like a family of 20. Probably. Speaking of being normal, in 1912... Frosty went on a cruise to England with his family. The cruise, an extended vacation to put it lightly, lasted three years. That's a hell of a vacation. Hell, it seems the only reason he bothered to end the stay at all is because World War I broke out, ruining the festive mood. As often happens. Begrudgingly, Frosty and co. returned to America and Frosty took teaching back up. But he returned to America with the spirit of a poet and armed with connections in the industry, like the very problematic Ezra Pound. Mm. Have we talked about why, like, uh, why Ezra Pound? Why would we? Yeah, I, I guess. Ezra Pound was a fascist sympathizer. Not a good dude. 
Frosty published his first two collections, A Boy's Will, and North of Boston around this time. Also, he broke Gertrude Stein's chair. Frosty again took his hand at farming. <laughs> <laughs> he just keeps taking his hands at those farms. This time balancing the agrarian life with teaching. This time at Amherst College. <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember. I just remember your cousin getting very upset that people pronounce it wrong. I don't remember what the right way to pronounce it yeah, well, is. Amherst College, where you're allowed to become a professor with maybe half of a degree. God, what times? In 1924, at 50, he won the first of his four Pulitzer Prizes. I wonder, after two, where do you even put the others? On your special Pulitzer Prize shelf dedicated to Pulitzer Prizes, obviously. At 60... Like many 60-year-olds, he decided to take a swing at being a Floridian. He bought some land down in South Miami that he dubbed Pencil Pines. He says he named his property Pencil Pines because he had never made a penny from anything that did not involve the use of a pencil. He also gave talks at the University of Miami. However, he did not love Miami or the sweltering heat as he loved the North. So he spent some time teaching at the University of Michigan, go blue, <laughs> and Middlebury College's Breadloaf School of English. Yeah, he doesn't. He didn't write any poems about Miami, huh? No, that's what he left the great poet Pitbull to do. <laughs> Dale. Dale. Even though Frosty never completed all that much of his higher education, Dude did amass at least forty honorary degrees in his lifetime. You know what? Fuck him. I've decided this now. <laughs> you see that, kids? All your money and hard work was pointless. You could have just gotten that piece of paper for being awesome. Apparently tuition and term papers are just the tax on those who can't take three-year English vacations. You fuck Robert Frost. I'm taking this stance. In the 1960s, a man named John F. Kennedy became president. Aside from apparently being a ladies' man, he was also a man of poetry. Dude respected the hell out of Frost. He asked Frost to read a poem at his inauguration. It's a thing that had never been done before. Frost wrote a poem special for that day. But that day was too sunny and blustery, and so Frost was unable to read the poem he brought with him, and instead he just rambled off some poem he already had memorized. I mean, dude was 86 at this point, so it's not like he was at his best anymore. Yeah, I feel like you could forgive him that at, at that point. Not one to retire, however, Frosty wanted JFK to task him with another job, to bring peace to the Cold War. Frosty was sent <laughs> with an American delegation to the Soviet Union to meet and attempt to woo Nikita Khrushchev. Some people just fucking retire. Uh, others are 90 years old and they say, hey, I bet I could help make the Soviet Union better. <laughs> he thought his poetry just melt hearts on both sides of the Atlantic. <laughs> Apparently the meeting went well and fine enough. I mean, it didn't solve anything based on, you know, history, but his heart was in the right place. Are we going to see the episode of uh, The Americans where Robert Frost meets up with Oleg Biroff? Robert Frost was dead by the 80s. Yeah, I know. He died in the 60s. Because on January 29th, <laughs> 1963, at 88 years old, Frosty died from complications after prostate surgery. On his tombstone, he had a line from The Lesson for Today inscribed that reads as follows. I had a lover's quarrel with the world. Well, you should read the whole stanza. That's how it's on his uh, tomb. Only the line is on the tombstone. He uh, originally read it for the Phi Beta Kappa Society at Harvard University in 1941. I, I know this because I was like, hmm, maybe I should pick this as the poem to talk about, but it is very long. The ending stanza is, I hold your doctrine of memento mori and were an epitaph to be my story. I'd have a short one ready for my own. I would have written of me on my stone. I had a lover's quarrel with the world. And so they were like, well, that's tantamount to asking 
to put that on there. And so they did. While I did not touch on these things during the chronological biography of Frosty, I would be remiss if I did not mention how much shit he had to put up with. So I did mention how Daddy Frosty died when Frosty was a wee lad. Well, his mother died about a decade after Daddy. After that, he had to commit his younger sister, Jeannie, to a mental hospital where she later died. That sucks. Jeannie was not the only other member of the family who suffered from mental illness, as both Frosty himself and his mom battled depression. Frosty's own daughter, Irma, was committed to a mental hospital when she was 44. In total, Frosty and his wife had six children. Son Elliot died of cholera at four. Son Carol committed suicide at 38. Daughter Marjorie died as a result of perpetual fever at childbirth at 29. And daughter Eleanor Bettina died just one day after her birth in 1907. Daughter Wesley Frost Ballantine lived until 84 and was the real winner of this genetic lottery. And Frosty lost Eleanor to complications from breast cancer about 30 years before his own death. Yeah, Frosty may have lived on some sort of cursed land. Potentially, yeah. I guess, you know, that's that's your trade-off. On the one hand, you know, back in the before times, you could teach college without a college degree, but also you would lose bunch of your family members to childbirth and cholera and all that fun stuff. Always not lost for Frosty. Again, he did win four Pulitzer Prizes and was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature 31 times, although he never won. Always a bridesmaid. Never a bride. 31 times and they didn't just eventually, like, I feel like after like 20, they'd be like, just fucking give it to him. Just give him the damn thing. Someone else swooped in. He's considered by many as an American literary juggernaut, and he was considered that even during his lifetime. I mean, hell, the dude was on a U.S. stamp for a while. That's like the marker, being on a U.S. stamp for a while. Yeah, that matters. (laughs) He he was on a stamp at some point. (laughs) Hey, have you been on a stamp? No. Oh, how about you make it? Damn it. Hey everybody, it's Megan, your co-host, your dungeon master, your best friend, your person who blatantly steals bits from the Adventure Zone. Because it's it's late and I'm still very sick. That doesn't mean that I'm not master of the dungeon, though. I just, I want to make that perfectly clear. That the two things are, are not mutually exclusive. But there's no time to unpack that, because I have to talk about the wonderful, beautiful, amazing people who help keep this clown car full of books and dildos tooting its way down the street. The members of our Patreon are all wonderful, and if I met them, I would most likely melt into a horrible, disgusting pile of goo. So, like, maybe let's keep the relationship long distance, just, you know, for all of our sakes. So I'll have to love them from afar, including our newest members, Sophie and Laura. Thank you guys. If you want to become a member of our Patreon and gain access to bonus content, uh, exclusive swag, and the ability to vote for what shows we do next, just head on over to patreon.com slash and sign up today. Or click the link at onolitclass.com. This episode's pod pal is Talk and Roll, a comedy D&D podcast co-hosted... Thank you, Kat. It's lovely. Co-hosted in part by my friend Charles, who you may also know from the the other show that we do together with with this loud cat, with our other friend Derek, uh, Rolling Misadventures. Because, you know, yes, I know, your life is very hard. Because one nerdy tabletop role-playing show was was clearly not enough for him and and so he has to collect them 
like the fancy dice that I'm sure he has. Nerd. Um, but no, Talk and Roll is an incredibly funny show made by great people. And uh, I'll let them tell you about it because this shithead won't stop meowing. Oh, yeah, now, now you, yeah, of course. I call you out and you stop. Go listen to Talk and Roll. Hey there, this is Sydney with Talk and Roll, NoCo FM's bi-weekly D&D show where myself and three other goofy goobers play Dungeons and Dragons. You can listen to Talk and Roll every other Saturday night at 7pm, first on NoCo.fm, or Sunday mornings wherever podcasts are found. Will you enjoy the show? Let's roll for it. Actually roll for it. Do it. 12. Nice. You're gonna like it. I think. So Megan and I each chose two of Frosty's poems to present and discuss. I got first dibs, mm-hmm. and I chose The Road Not Taken and Mending Wall. You immediately chose two of his like most well-known poems. <laughs> yep. I will discuss The Road Not Taken first. It was published in 1916 when Frosty was 42. This was the time right after World War I broke out and Frosty returned home. One of the people he met on that extended vacation was the English writer Edward Thomas, and Frosty sent Thomas an early copy of the poem. Apparently, Thomas took this poem very personally and seriously as he believed it was about his choice to enlist to fight in World War I. Thomas died two years into the war. Meg and I have actually discussed this poem before and how the public at large seems to misunderstand, misread, or misquote the poem. I shall give my recital of it right now. As opposed to later. All right, I got it all capital letters. Me, 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 me. Unique <laughs> New York. Yeah? Yeah. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler. Long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though, as for that passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first another day, yet knowing how way leads to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. In short, this poem is about a traveler who's hiking through a forest and comes across a fork in the road. It's time to make a decision. Should she go to the right? Should she go to the left? The traveler wishes she could travel both, which of course is impossible. She can only walk down one or the other. This speaks to the doubt, uncertainty, and lack of conviction that will plague our narrator throughout the poem. It's like Cheaty from The Good Place. You can't make a decision. The traveler peers as far down each path as she can until it just bends just beyond her sight. This leads to a hesitant, uncertain feeling in our narrator. The traveler studied the paths carefully and chose the one that did not seem to be very trampled on or stomped on. It seems like an unused road that has not seen much foot traffic at all. As this speaks to a common misconception about the poem, so many people seem to think that this is a poem about breaking away from the masses, or rather forging one's own original path and being a unique individual. And that's certainly a heartwarming message, 
But the poem does not seem to support that interpretation at all. Readers erroneously take the narrator at face value and assume that one of the paths truly has received high amounts of traffic and the other truly has received low amounts of traffic. Well, what is there to lead us to assume that this narrator is like unreliable and we can't take them at their word? Well, we can't take them at their word, but because it's really not the case. After all, the narrator concludes the traffic had, quote, warned them really about the same. Okay, so people just don't just ignore that part. Correct. <laughs> Now, the pessimist in me is compelled to say then that whatever path you wind up choosing in life really isn't that unique or special or interesting as you may have initially thought. Any way you approach it, you'll end up selecting a path that is typical, boring, uneventful, and painfully unremarkable. Yeah, but you, here's the cool thing about paths. They're just there. You, you could always walk back and then go walk down the other one and see what's going on on that path. Well, but that's kind of the point of a road, right? That someone paved it and carved it out of nature. Someone has been down it before. One way or the other, it seems based on the narrator's outlook, we all basically wind up at the same destination. Regret, disappointment, and lack of fulfillment. So then why does taking one road opposed to the other make all the difference? Uh, as the motivational posters are quick to tell us. So to your other point, the narrator suggests that deep down she knows there will never ever be a second chance. Way leads on to way the narrator says, which means one road inevitably leads to another road, which then leads to another road. And before you know it, you're hundreds of miles away from the original fork with no means to return. That's some heavy walking. By the end of the poem, we realize that the traveler is now elderly, looking back at this far-flung memory. The first part of the poem was the past, and this final stanza is the present. It's strange how in the last stanza she mentions that she took the path less traveled by. But as we remember from earlier in the poem, both paths were equally traveled. But due to the narrator's advanced age, we could perhaps assume that her memory is failing her and she's remembering things the way she wishes they were, as opposed to how they actually are. Moreover, the sigh in the final stanza further supports the notion of remorse. It would seem that everything that comes after the sad, wary little sigh should be treated with a grain of salt, that perhaps the narrator is thinking back on her past with rose-colored glasses. And finally, we'll look at the last line. And that has made all the difference. We're tempted to read this as a line of triumph, but why exactly? She never really gives us any indication that this has made any positive difference in her life. Just a difference. This could connote either a positive or a negative outcome. It's never made clear. Sure, maybe choosing soup over sour that one time has made all the difference in my life. It's led me to this awesome existence I have. But as data nerds have told me before, correlation is not causation. Oh, and on a last note on the poem, Edward Thomas, the guy who enlisted in World War I, that Frost sent an early copy of the poem to, Frost said of him, Thomas was, quote, a person who, whichever road he went, would be sorry he didn't go the other. He was hard on himself that way. So it really was that he was writing a poem about a cheaty type <laughs> who's just really indecisive. Yeah, make a decision. You'll regret either one. <laughs> you feel shitty no matter what so just pick something and there's no going back and just be okay with the fact that you make a decision and it's that you made a decision that's what matters so actually this uh, from what i remember this is very different very different rant a much more composed discussion than what you did in our mini episode the, the only thing that carried over because i remember it is that soup and salad thing <laughs> Because I just remember you being like, you'll always be dreaming of the salad that might have been. <laughs> there you go. I'm big on super salad. It's a big decision. Which is weird because you never go for a super salad when we go out to eat anywhere. French fries. 
Oh, no, we tried to get the salad this week, and they brought us french fries anyway. That's true. That is true. So there you go. Not even four days ago. I took the salad less traveled, and they brought me french fries anyway. See, it's really what this poem's all about. Not forging your own path, which, I mean, I don't know how you could take a road and like be like, yeah, I'm forging my own path. Motherfucker, it's a damn road. By definition, you ain't forging it. Oh, it's, it's not a road road. It's grassy. It's a path. Or how did it become a path? Because someone else fucking walked down. Well, yeah, yeah, court. but there's a difference between a paved road and a path that someone has, you know. Well, someone's been down it. Yes. Anyway, the poem's really about making a damn decision. Megan struggles with this on a daily basis. Not even a daily basis, hourly, maybe even a minute-to-minute basis. Why are you dragging me like this? Because it's true. This is your intervention. It's not a podcast at all. Imagine what um, Robert Frost would say about you. I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you what Robert Frost would say about me. So, yeah, RJ uh, immediately went for the well-known poems, and, I mean, I considered I could have done, like, Nothing Gold Can Stay, which featured prominently in the Essie Hinton's super gay novel, The Outsiders. Look, Meg, this guy was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature 31 times. Dude better have more than two poems. No, I just do. But, uh, so what I want to say... Or are these the only two poems and the other 29 are just remixes? Yep. Welcome to the road, the road less traveled, the remakes. Yo, 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 yo. <laughs> Two roads diverged in a wood. Drop the bass. I sent my bitches to the left, my boys to the right. <laughs> <laughs> Two roads diverged in a wood. YOLO. You only get to pick one. Wait, no, wait. You only... You, you only travel once you only travel through a wood once check my strut (laughs) so what i wanted to do is pick a couple poems that were considered to be lesser known or somehow sort of breaking against what was sort of considered his type as rj mentioned frost is a he's a he's a nature boy He's, a, he's not. No, he's not the nature boy. <laughs> he's not, he's not Ric Flair. Um, this one goes out to my boy, Ric Flair. <laughs> Woo! Stay alive, Rick. Don't die yet, Rick. We need to break in. With the <laughs> <news>. <laughs> we have to announce the passing. Oh my god! Don't do that. Look, at the time of this recording, Ric Flair is alive and well. So yeah, he's he's super into nature, and so um, nature, nature. Yes, sir. Nature. So I picked something that he actually does not discuss typically, a, a setting that is very unusual for him. Anus. Um, no, they, I took the anus less traveled. It's titled In a Disused Graveyard and was published in 1923. And so had his wife died at that point? I, you know, they, although even if his wife hadn't, like clearly there'd been a lot of death 23? in 23? Yeah. No. Okay. There's still probably been, at that point, enough death. He'd lost both his parents. That's enough death for, for someone to meditate on. But he really didn't talk about it that much. So this, this is kind of a, a weird one for him. And it goes as follows. The living come with grassy tread to read the gravestones on the hill. The graveyard draws the living still, but never any more the dead. The verses in it say and say, The ones who living come today to read the stones and go away. Tomorrow, dead will come to stay. So sure of death the marbles rhyme, yet can't help marking all the time how no one dead will seem to come. What is it men are shrinking from? It would be easy to be clever and tell the stones men hate to die and have stopped dying now forever. I think they would believe the lie. So 
I mean, if you're going to take this literally, it's it's a full cemetery. It is a cemetery that is full up with dead people, which is why even though the living are still coming there to like visit, no more dead are coming because there's no more room, no more vacancy in the cemetery. Built some mausoleums. <laughs> and I, I like, so he ends with this sort of idea of like, well, maybe we could pretend and say that actually it's because people have just stopped dying. Because death is scary, and we want to not think about that, and we, we could just lie to the gravestones and say, nah, people have just stopped dying, and that maybe they would believe it, that men no longer die. This is one of Frost's darker poems, and one of the very few where he broaches the subject of death, like, very bluntly and kind of head-on. And I kind of feel like it's, I don't want to say optimistic, because it is talking about a cemetery that literally has no more room for dead people in it. But I think the idea of lying to the the headstones has like this element of kind of like whistling in the dark, you know, of trying to look at, at death and make not like a joke, but I don't know, maybe like lighten the mood up a little bit. I didn't expect you to just really come at this with like full analysis. But now I think about the fact that you're probably stealing a lot of that from the notes that you already used to teach your class, aren't you? I teach poetry. Um, whereas I was just kind of like, this is interesting. And it's not something that, you know, whenever I read Frost in school, because we really kind of blew right through that one about Frost poems that we had to read in school. It pretty much was always like, nothing gold can stay. The stupid paths in the woods, something about snow. Yeah, what is it? Is stopping in the woods on a snowy evening? I have no idea. You think that's what? Yeah. So this Here, you is... want to be, you want to sound smart? Sure. You see, there's a dichotomy like there is between the two different roads off to the right. Well, how about between living and dead? That's true. There's the dichotomy here between the living and the dead. He likes dichotomies. He d- seems to. He die hungry. That we have an idea that this is a dead place where the dead don't come to, and that it, it's just as full of life as it is death because people are always coming to visit. They're choosing to visit. Ex- yes, they are choosing specifically They're to visit. They're choosing to get on that road. Despite the fact that Death is scary, that idea. How uh, no one dead will seem to come. What is it men are shrinking from? That Yeah, death, death is scary and no one wants to do it, but these are people that are choosing to engage with it. And in this poem, Frost is choosing to engage with it. And I don't know, I just found that interesting because that sort of topic and mood is something that I never really encountered when I was taught any of his poems in school. If you want to be taught a poem, next week, T.S. Eliot's. The love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. We don't have an episode coming out next week, and actually, we're not doing poetry on our next episode. <laughs> we already know what we're doing on our next episode. Yeah, J. Alfred Prufrock. No. I mean, we'll get to T.S. Eliot at some point. God, there's just so much to unpack with T.S. Eliot. There's just so much going on. Maybe when Cats comes out, that'll be our, that'll, that'll be our, our synergy. Why? Because Cats is based on poems from t.s Eliot that he wrote about cats like all those stupid oh. cat names are from his poems i didn't know this well you're gonna learn because okay. when when that fucking nightmare of a movie comes out we'll be there talking about t.s Eliot, and i mean you want to talk about problematic fucking no, poets you're gonna want to talk Jesus. about little women we talked about little women already Shh. <laughs> they don't know that if they just go back in our cat our catalog we re-released the episode ah oh. Little Women, the remix. <laughs> bitches went to the left, I went to the right. All three of them bitches. There were more than three sisters, I think. Get on this dick. But only if you're over 18. 
Only if you're over 18. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's important. That's a very important thing to <laughs> specify. Don't get on this dick until you're of age. <laughs> yeah, even if you're little, but you're over 18, that's good. There you go. You could be you'd be real short, but just yeah. as long as you're old enough, <laughs> there's no height requirement to ride this dick. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> they got to choose. What? I came across two dicks in the meadow. <laughs> One had clearly seen more use than the other. I took the dick less traveled. And it has made all the difference. <laughs> I thought maybe I'll make it back to that other dick someday. But you know, way goes to way. <laughs> I got preggers. It shut that whole thing down for a while. Wow, way, way can... to be heteronormative and assume. Yeah. And it's not a man riding that dick. No. Well, we're talking about Little Women. <laughs> That's the title of the book. Okay, look. We traveled a lot of distance very quickly. Leave me alone. The second poem I chose, Mending Walls, which was published in 1914, two years before The Road Not Taken, when Frosty was still in England. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that sends the frozen ground swell under it, and spills the upper boulders in the sun and makes gaps even two can pass abreast. The work of hunters is another thing. I've come after them and made repair, where they have left not one stone on a stone. But they would have the rabbit out of hiding to please the yelping dogs. The gaps, I mean. No one has seen them made or heard them made. But it's spring, mending time, we find them there. I let my neighbor know beyond the hill, and on a day we meet to walk the line and set the wall between us once again. We keep the wall between us as we go, to each the boulders that have fallen to each. And some are loaves, and some are nearly balls. We have to use a spell to make them balance. Stay where you are until our backs are turned. We wear our fingers rough with handling them. Oh, just another kind of outdoor game. One on a side, it comes to little more. There, where it is, we do not need the wall. He is all pine, and I am apple orchard. My apple trees will never get across, and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. He only says, good fences make good neighbors. Spring is the mischief in me, and I wonder if I could put a notion in his head. Why do they make good neighbors? Isn't it where there are cows? But here there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. I could say elves to him, but it's not elves exactly, and I'd rather he said it for himself. I see him there, bringing a stone, grasped firmly by the top in each hand, like an old stone savage armed. He moves in darkness as it seems to me, not of woods only and the shade of trees. He will not go behind his father's saying, and likes having thought of it so well. He says again, good fences make good neighbors. I do like that poem a lot, actually. <laughs> In short, there are two neighbors who meet up every spring to repair the stone wall that separates their properties. The neighbor believes that good fences make good neighbors, continually repeating and repairing the wall brick by brick. However, the narrator starts to question the need of this wall. Do barriers truly make us happier? When the neighbor says good fences make good neighbors, we realize that his saying was passed down to the neighbor from his father. In this way, the neighbor represents tradition and custom, relying on the past to serve as his guide. The speaker describes his neighbor as an old stone savage, making us think of a Neanderthal or a caveman. In doing so, 
Our speaker seems to challenge old-school methods and paints a picture of the wall as antiquated or uncivilized. There's definitely a disconnect between our speaker and his neighbor. They work together to mend the wall, but they don't talk much to each other as they go along. The speaker wishes to put a notion in his neighbor's head, but he doesn't actually attempt to challenge his neighbor's love of the wall. The wall takes on greater meaning as we watch the lines of communication shut down between the speaker and his neighbor. Man, it's too bad I can't think of a, a metaphor to liken this to in this day and age. There is absolutely nothing in the real world that makes this come to mind. But I like how he points out, you know, that there's literally no need of it. He says, you know, maybe if one of us had cows, that would make sense. You don't want to have them roaming. But I've got apple trees. He's got pine trees. They're not going to come attack each other. We really don't need this here. <laughs> yeah, we know exactly where the property line is already. Yeah. And this is another one that people will take out of context. Because I, I always see good fences make good neighbors completely divorced from context and used by people the same way that the neighbor is using it without any of that sort of questioning from the narrator. Just that, like, it'd be good if you were over there and there was a, a fence between us and I didn't have to look at your dumb face. They heard it from their parents, too. Mm -hmm. It continues to get passed down. Mm-hmm. You gotta read the whole poem, folks. Although the narrator doesn't say that the wall doesn't make sense or the wall is bad. It's just why are you building the wall that you just so have a reason for it. You're just doing it because the guy before you did it. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. That he's the the narrator. They're at least questioning that they're not like they're they are. To be fair, they are complicit in in, in making that wall, but they're at least taking the time to stop and be like. Do we even really need to do this? But clearly they're conflict avoidant. Like you said, that they're just trying to plant the notion. They're not even putting in a real argument. They're just like, hey, I know we just, we do the wall because we do it every year and it's just something that we do. But like, maybe even if we thought about this, because I, I like that line about if I was going to build a, a wall, I want to think about what I was keeping in and what I was keeping out. Mm -hmm. And so it, it could just even be just sort of a call for, for critical thinking. As he says, I could say elves yeah. <laughs> for all it matters, but I want him to come up with something. Exactly. I don't want to give him anything. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is called Good Hours, and it was published in 1914. Hours like the time? Yeah. Good Hours, H-O-U-R-S. It's another one that's considered a, a, less, a lesser known poem. I had for my winter evening walk no one at all with whom to talk, but I had the cottages in a row up to their shining eyes in snow. And I thought I had the folk within, I had the sound of a violin. I had a glimpse through curtain laces of youthful forms and youthful faces. I had such company outward bound, I went till there were no cottages found. I turned and repented, but coming back, I saw no window, but that was black. Over the snow, my creaking feet disturbed the slumbering village street, like prof profanation, fuck. Well, it's it's profane, but it's like pro profanation, profanation, profanation. Yeah. I have no idea. Like profanation by your leave at ten o'clock of a winter eve. So it's it's nature per usual, and he's out walking the, as he tends to do. I know I'm reading this as all of these are just Robert Frost as opposed to divorcing it and talking about a narrator. But once once again, we're in and nature. It's a good MFA graduate. <laughs> yep. The narrator is in nature, as our, our Frost narrators are often are, but this time it speaks very specifically to a loneliness and 
a sense of isolation that, you know, they're they're walking and they're enjoying the snow, but they also, they're looking in on the, the people in their village. They see, you know, they hear, they hear music. They see happy young people. And they think that, you know, that they'll have that to come back to. But then, you know, they come back and it's late. And I saw no window, but that was black. That everybody's gone to sleep. And that even their just steps sound profane in like the just total and complete silence. You can read it as like a self-inflicted isolation that, you know, they're choosing this. They walk away from the village when it's light and lively and they think that there will be something there when they come back and there's not. There's definitely kind of the sentiment, I feel like, of growing old underneath it as well and just sort of losing people. And I don't know, it just it has like this really strong vibe of like a self-imposed exile. And I feel like a lot of Frost poems are sort of reveling in nature and very like positive on I'm gonna just be here out alone with the trees and it's gonna be great and this is one that engages more with that you're making a choice that you have this dichotomy again of that if maybe you're choosing nature and things like that that you're rejecting society basically and that on the one hand, like, yeah, rejection of society, you can kind of get behind that because a lot of times society sucks, but it also means that if you're rejecting society in total, you're also rejecting companionship and community, and that can be really fucking lonely. It's basically, to put all these poems together, there's two sides of a wall. You need to choose. I guess maybe the way to win is decide, you know what, we shouldn't build a wall, but don't be such a fucking pussy, you're building that damn wall. Yeah. You might think there's a third option, but guess what? You're fixing that wall anyway. This one actually more makes me think of the two roads because, again, it's talking about it's talking about lost chances. They had the opportunity to stop the village. They didn't. They tried to come back, maybe like coming back to the other path, but the opportunity was lost. Everybody went the fuck to sleep. Now, of course, you could say much like, well, that path isn't going anywhere. Well, in the morning, people will be up again, but it's it's a metaphor. Hey, Meg, I came across a fork in the road. Yeah. And I took it. I came across a fork in the road. And I just kept walking in the middle and eventually hit a tree. No, I took the fork. You took the fork. I used it to eat my linguine. <laughs> Your linguine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an odd choice. My macaroni, <laughs> which is an American dish. This is a weird inflection. <laughs> macaroni. Macaroni. Stuck a feather in his head and called it macaroni. Because yes. the word macaroni used to mean of the fashion. There you go. That's just a little extra bonus fact nugget for you. Bonus nugget. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. In all the Star Wars movies, you've never seen anyone eat macaroni. Okay. That's a sad, sad galaxy far, far away a long, long time this ago. Is the, none of this is going in. What? Would you want to live in a galaxy that does not have macaroni and cheese? No. There you go. That's right. <laughs> Star Wars? Look, it's a big fucking galaxy. Just because we've never seen like Han Solo chow down on some fucking mac and cheese doesn't mean it's not out there. That's why Star Wars? Inferior universe to Star Trek. Continue. Who do you see eating mac and cheese in Star Trek? Well, Star Trek's our timeline. Oh. It follows humans. I guess. There's Earth. Ain't no Earth in Star Wars. That you know of. I've seen them all. There's no Earth. Yeah, you don't know about the EU. I've seen them all. <laughs> no Earth. All right, I've got a bonus poem. I need a nap. Okay, well, it's really, really short. Please, Adam Haddam. Shortest poem in the history of the English language right there. Yeah. Please, Adam, Adam Haddam. Adam. Okay. Or baby shoes for sale, never worn. I mean, I think that's longer. 
And that, that's really considered more of a prose story than a poem. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> fuck you. Hemingway could kill you. Probably. Except not now because he's dead. <laughs> I, I wouldn't tempt them. <laughs> it's not Halloween anymore. I can say things like that. Now, I wouldn't try to invite Ernest Hemingway because you might get unlucky. Yeah. And Ernest P. Worrell shows up instead. Then you're real fucked. Yeah, he could probably kill me. So I was going to get into like influence in various adaptations and that's where this that's where the bonus poem comes in because Frost wrote a poem called Fire and Ice and apparently this uh, influenced the title and other aspects of George R. R. Martin's yes Germs as as discussed in our episode Germ the episode was not called Germ Um, I think is we welcome our insect overlords uh, where we talk about George R. R. Martin but anyway specifically his fantasy series obviously a song of ice and fire but more importantly. I mean, if we're talking about real cultural cachet, it's the epigraph of Stephanie Myers' second book of the Twilight Saga. Oh, wait, no. Third book? Yeah. Third book of the Twilight Saga. Breaking Dawn? Wait, no, wait, fuck. How many books were in the New Twilight? Moon? No, New Moon was the second, I think. Eclipse? Okay. Total Eclipse of the Heart. It's Eclipse. I don't remember if that's the second or the third one. And it's it's read by uh, Kristen Stewart as Bella Swan in the beginning of the Eclipse film. You know, that's how you know you've made an impact on the cultural mainstream of America when Bella Swan is reading your poem in Twilight movie. And Megan wants to suck face with Kristen now. Uh, yeah. Are, uh, are you, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You're, you're saying that like it's not like, like, yeah. like, duh. I, I am only human. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the poem. It's real short. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. People, wow, wow, he rhymed ice with suffice. He sure That's did. Pretty the other thing here? Yeah. This guy, he's really big on these extremes. Life, death, left, right, wall. Fire. No wall. <laughs> wall, no fire. wall, fire, fire ice. ice. Yeah. I think we're picking up on a theme here. People say that there, there's influence from the Divine Comedy in here, like Dante's Inferno and like the levels of hell and things like that. Uh, but there's a astronomer named Harlow Shapley, Shapley? It could be Shapley, who says different. It says, uh, I'm quoting here, that he recounted in an anecdote from 1960 in Science and the Arts presentation. He claims to have inspired fire and ice. Quote, Shapley describes an encounter he had with Robert Frost a year before the poem was published in which Frost, noting that Shapley was the astronomer of his day, asked him how the world will end, which is a weird thing. Like, you're an astronomer. How's the world going to end? Just seems like a weird mental leap. Shapley responded that either the sun will explode and incinerate the earth or the earth will somehow escape this fate only to end up slowly freezing in deep space. Shapley was surprised at seeing fire and ice in print a year later and referred to it as an example of how science can influence the creation of art or clarify its meaning. He's just assuming. He's just like, so I told Robert Frost a year ago that the earth's going to either like explode or freeze. And then he wrote this poem about it. So we already talked about other times that he's mentioned in other works of arts and literature and such, such as when Ponyboy uh, recites Nothing Gold Can Stay in The Outsiders and Twilight and uh, the Game of Thrones books, Fire and Ice, whatever the fuck it's called. And then also the song Robert Frost by Mal Blum, who's great, who's just a real good musician and is also non-binary. Which Robert Frost would not be okay with. Make a decision. <laughs> Make it, I, Left, I, right. 
Which side of the wall are you on? Two genders. Two genders diverged in a wood, and I said, mm, "Nope, fuck that." I turned around and went home. I'm gonna take the linguini, please. <laughs> two genders diverged in a wood, and I said, "Make mine linguini." <laughs> Mount Blum's song is a song about indecisiveness and not being able to make any sort of decision and caps off their song with the line i'm not robert frost if i wrote a poem about decision it would start and it would end in the same place so no no paths not one less traveled or more traveled and that's that's all i've got under that category so what have what have we learned today about robert frost apart from that he really likes comparing and contrasting things and making choices and then feeling bad about the choices we've made Took a three-year vacation. He did. He took a fucking three-year vacation in England that was only interrupted by a world war. Life was hard for him. A lot of death. Man, he lived... Isn't that weird? It's weird to think about people who were born in a specific time that you lived through two world wars. Yeah. I don't know. It's just kind of crazy to think about. He almost outlived JFK. Almost. Almost. (laughs) Not quite. I believe him and JFK died the same years. That's crazy to think about, huh? That is weird. And so that brings us to the part of the show that we always got to get to, and that is... Boneless hey, Donuts. That is Hey RJ. Boneless Donuts. Good or bad? Mm. <laughs> Please explain them to me. Mm. Donuts. <laughs> mm, Bone-in donuts. I realize we, neither of us made a Simpsons joke, so I had to get it in there, but uh. you know what? I got it. Clap back. <laughs> you so much. Robert Frost. Good, bad, stay frosty, my friends. Canceled. That white asshole <laughs> didn't go to college. <laughs> he used his white privilege to drop out after two months and became an English professor. Well, apparently he went back to Harvard for an unspecified amount of time. He just still didn't get a fucking degree. Yeah, that ain't gonna work for me, my people. Your people? My people. You are also... Uh, you're, 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 you're I ain't s- the people who could take a three-year English vacation. No, no, you're not. <laughs> no, I mean, he, he wrote the good of poetry. He used the good, <laughs> the good of The good of the words. <laughs> I make you the good of poetry. That's how they speak there in the North End in Massachusetts. <laughs> I make you the good of poetry like, like a Robert used to. I teach him. Do you teach him because he's easy or because you think he's good? He's important, I'm told. He's in the Norton Anthology. Thir- 31 non, what was it, Nobel Literature Prize thing, yeah, nominations. Would say, they would say different. They would say, nope, not important enough. I mean, I think his poetry is pretty easy to teach. And I like teaching my students, ah, you heard of this thing before. What do you think it's about? Well, you're wrong. <laughs> and then their eyes get all big and they go, oh, shit. It's, it's like wrong. you're dumb or something. It's always a great way to teach. It is. <laughs> Hey, Billy, what do you think? Well, Billy, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong, and you should feel bad that you're wrong. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ? Bobby Frosty. Good old Bobbert Frost. Robert Lee, the poet. <laughs> Not the Southerner. No. Also, kind of weird. I don't know, I guess they were from San Francisco originally, but that definitely was a part of the... Well, he was South. born in San Francisco. We don't know where his dad was born. That's why I used the fork I picked up in the road to eat. San Francisco treat. Rice-a-roni? Rice-a-roni. God, does, is rice-a-roni even a thing anymore? Yeah, is right. they, can you still purchase the San Francisco treat? Yeah, you play the little saxophone. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, Megan, Bobby Frosty, good, bad, or otherwise, choose. <laughs> make a decision. I made the one less traveled. No, I'm going to make the one that's pretty well traveled and say good. <laughs> 
So I just said, you know, I, I just made the point already that his poems are easy and that's not meant to be a dig. Like, we've talked a lot on the show about how poetry is hard and that learning poetry and understanding poetry can be very difficult and a lot of times difficult poetry can cause someone to just shut down. That You look at this and you're like, why? Why? Nope, don't want it. And I feel like Robert Frost is a good, like, baby's first poet because it's easy to understand. The metaphors are pretty clear. Although, as we just demonstrated, people can fuck it up a lot anyway. That's what happens when you get too famous. People read one line in your poem and they go, aha, I figured this out. So it also works well that way and that the poems are easy to read and easy to understand, but there is deeper stuff there that you might miss until RJ teaches you and says, you're wrong, Billy. And so, yeah, no, I mean, we are highlighting the poetry of another white man. We need to not do that. We need to do that less, but obviously he's an important poet and it's just good, easy poetry to read. And it's, it's interesting what he chose to engage with over the years and that he was just so sure that he could end communism with his poetry. <laughs> next week, the poetry of Langston Hughes. That's not what we're doing next week. I mean, we're going to have to get there. We, we need to talk about Langston Hughes. We probably should have talked about Langston Hughes before we talked about Robert Frost, but oh well, here we are. Maybe we'll do Langston Hughes after what we do for our next episode. And uh, that'll about do it for this episode of Ono oh Lit Class. If you like the things you hear on this show, if you had two paths diverging in a wood and one of them was not telling your friends, family, and various casual acquaintances about the show and then the other one was telling them, we hope you would take the road where you, you told people. Because it, it, it's good and it helps spread awareness of Ono oh Lit Class. This got away from me. You can find us on Twitter at Ono oh Lit Class Pod, on Facebook, on everything, everywhere, all the time. Adultfriendfinder.com. Adultfriendfinder.com, out in the woods on a snowy evening. We're probably there. Farmersonly.com. Yes. You will, we'll take our hand at farming <laughs> so that we can get onto farmersonly.com. I think I came across old Bobby's profile on there. Amazing, considering that he died in the 60s. <laughs> I think uh, someone might be catfishing farmers as Robert Frost. But if all of those places are too inconvenient, we're also at onalitclass.com. Our next episode will be on November 28th. That's Thanksgiving, isn't it? Yeah. We do that a lot on accident. Pilgrim's Progress, people. Nope, we, we'll, we'll be giving thanks, all right. Because yeah, as you may have noticed, it will be a very special numbered episode from us. 420. No, we have not done nearly that many. Good God. Double nickels, 55. Did that already. I don't know. I guess you'll just have to see. But until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. You could teach them street smarts. You want a second go at that? Street smarts. That was even worse.